0: Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues Podcast. This week, uh, I'm your panel, Charles Maxwood. Dave and Valentino are out, so it's just going to be me asking all of my new questions to Andre. Andre uh, Bondarev is our guest today. Uh, Andre, do you want to introduce yourself, let people know who you are and why you're famous, all
1: that good stuff? (laughs) Sure. Uh, So my name is Andre Bondarev. Uh, I've been... Uh, building software products for um, a little over 12 years. Uh, my tool of choice has, has always been Ruby. Uh, I played around with a lot of different languages. Mm-hmm. Uh, Python, Node.js, uh, JavaScript, some other ones. Um, and I kept coming back to Ruby um, and, uh, and its ecosystem, its community. Um, and recently, uh, I've been diving into the emerging uh, AI ML space and, and uh, uh, taking a stab at building applications mm-hmm. with uh, large language models.
0: Good deal. And we've talked a bit about some of the large language models and machine learning and stuff like that on this show. We also have a machine learning show, Adventures in Machine Learning, if people are interested in that. But uh, yeah, um, we invited you on to talk about Vector Search, which is, seems like it kind of splits the difference between the two. Um, do you want to just talk briefly about what vector search is? Because uh, I I have this vague idea, but I don't think I can explain it.
1: Sure. Uh, so, uh, so vector search, um, synonymous with uh, semantic search, is the idea of um, being able to execute, uh, being able to interpret Uh, the meaning or concepts uh, uh, from the underlying query as opposed Mm -hmm. to a traditional keyword search that just attempts to match your data sets based on those exact queries uh, slash keywords that the user passes.
0: So, for example, I could ask a question instead of just typing in a couple of primary words that I'm looking for. Right, right. That makes sense. It sounds fancy. Um, so, how how do I go about adding vector search? Uh, well, let's back up for a minute. Why why do I need vector search as opposed to keyword search? Like, is, is there a fundamental difference in experience or something like that?
1: Yeah, I think. Um so of course the answer is it depends, right? And it's, um, uh, you have to look at specific use cases. Okay. Um, in, in some instances you do want to give the user, uh, an ability to search for a specific, uh, keyword matches. Um, but the vector search, uh, is a lot more flexible in terms of, in terms of discovery. Um, so, um, you know, just like just like humans have a have a hard time communicating with each other and problem solving and coming to a consensus, and and when you're searching through a large data set, uh, you don't always know what you're looking for, right? You kind of have a vague idea. You're putting some uh, some queries out there, and the, the faster the system is able to, uh, the faster the system is able to return what you're looking for mm-hmm. uh, or what it, what it thinks you're looking for, um, the, the the better experience it is overall.
0: So, yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, the the speed of return and the accuracy of results, that makes sense. One thing, though, that I've seen is, you know, you mentioned the large language models. And so, you know, a lot of times we're talking about like chat GPT and things like that. People are out there using and I've had this conversation with a number of people regarding both having chat GPT, I don't know, write code, and also just having chat GPT answer questions, especially when it gets into long long form con- content, recognizing kind of the nuance of, of the conversation and things like that, right? So if I put a transcript, for example, from my show into a large language model and expecting it to come back with the results, a lot of times it misses, right? A lot of times it's not accurate. Like, a lot of, A lot of times it is accurate, right? So I've been using Chat GPT to do some writing and things like that, or asking it questions. And when I ask it questions, it you know, it still doesn't always get it right. And a lot of that's really just depends on the data it's trained on, right? So Chat GPT, for example, mm-hmm. is trained on a subset of the internet. And so where the internet is generally wrong, Chat GPT is also going to be generally wrong. Um, and just to give a little bit more context, I know I'm kind of talking way longer than I, I want to to ask a question, but um, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a parliamentarian, right? So he's, he's the guy that sits in the meeting and makes sure that everybody follows Robert's Rules of Order. And if there's a question about procedure or whether we can or can't do something according to the rules of the meeting and Robert's Rules, he's the guy that looks at the rules and makes a ruling. And so he was asking parliamentary questions on ChatGPT and it was actually telling him wrong answers. And then when he asked it where it got the information from, it would actually cite, you know, it's it's in this chapter, this section of Robert's Rules of Order, and it was incorrect. And so um, I guess my concern is, you know, how, how much data do you have to give this? How much training do you have to give it in order to, for it to be able to say, you know, if I type in "how do I use device on Rails," right? How how much training does it have to have, or how good does my data have to be in order for it to give me the right answer?
1: Yeah, so that um, that's a very good question, uh, and also the, the the case you you had just built leading up to that question. Um, and you can you can actually test this really easily by asking Chat GPT to provide some sort of, uh, uh, latest scientific papers or research papers on a given topic. And it will just, oh, okay. it will, um, maybe, maybe the top, top level, uh, the, the root domain will be correct. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but what follows then the actual path, the actual link is, is, is completely, uh, false, fake. Um, so from a standpoint of vector search, the way vector search uh, works typically is that um, you would uh, generate uh, embeddings
2: uh-huh.
1: um, from your data sets. So let's say uh, if, he, if you have a database, uh, a list of products, right? Let's take uh, a typical e-commerce example. You have a list of products. Mm-hmm. Um, you would uh, generate embeddings for every for every product. Um that would include different information such as the title, the description, um, the properties, the sizing, etc. Um, and then the vector search uh, on top of that data set uh, would actually uh, translate uh, a user's query into into a vector embedding. Um, it will then go to a vector search database, try to find the closest, n number of matches it would then take those matches take that data uh, pass it to an LLM and say can you synthesize an answer based on this user's question right so at any point in time it's, it's, it's taking most relevant uh, database entries um, and passes uh, and uses an LLM to provide a coherent answer okay so
0: I guess my question is then, is it actually going to try and give me an answer to the question or is it going to give me links to the products or what well, What kind of a result are we looking at getting? It's
1: so as a developer, you can control that. Okay. Um, and there's kind of different different paths you can take. Um the scenario that I just mentioned—that I just mentioned—the uh, LLM is going to try to give you an answer to your question. Okay. Um, but you can also augment that answer with, "Hey, these are the these are the links uh, to the reference products above," because you, you know which mm-hmm. records are going to be extracted from the vector right. search database when that when that uh, uh, search is executed. That makes sense. So,
0: yeah. So we could, for example, have it come back and say, you know, so if I ask it, um, if I have this model of car and I, you know, which tires do you have, then it could give me a list of tires or it could explain, um, maybe these tires are great for off-road and these tires are great for on-road or whatever. Right. And so I, I can give as comprehensive an answer as I want as the programmer. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. And that, that's kind of interesting just from the standpoint of like I run the podcast website and when I do a search, you know, I generally just want it to link back to whichever podcast episode, but I could, for example, have timestamps and feed it timestamps and that, that could be interesting. Right. Is, you know, you ask a question that says, "Hey, in this podcast around this timestamp, right? Uh, these these hosts discuss the thing." Right, right, right. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, another uh, uh, so in, in, an example of putting uh, Vector Search on top of your uh, on, uh, on top of your podcast. Right. So uh, presumably, you have you have a description for every podcast. Mm-hmm. Right. A title, kind of the topics that have been discussed. Um, and let's say I'm searching for uh, the word politics. Right. So I, I'm just curious if you guys have right. ever touched on any, any, any politics within your podcast. Um, and uh, if with keyword search, if the word politics is not explicitly mentioned in any of your right. show notes, I'm not going to get that answer back. But if there are similar concepts uh, described, uh, adjacent concepts to the mm-hmm. field of politics described in your show notes, I with vector search, I will get a result back. Right. So you right. You, you you may mention that uh, a friend of yours is a, a uh, is a parliamentary, right? Uh-huh. Um, and so uh, with vector search, if I search for politics, I expect to get that show back, right? That result back.
0: That makes sense. So how do I go about building this in? I'm, I'm still not completely sold that this is always the right answer. And you said it depends. So yeah, it, it really, you, right. You design the experience you want. Um, you're not locked into the keyword style search, which I think is the point, right? So if you want to design a different experience, you can have it, which is exciting. How do, how do I put this in, right? How do I decide, okay, this is it's going to give back you know maybe a little bit more a little bit different result or different kind of result and i want i want a vector search right i want people to be able to say you know hey you know chuck talked about politics on this episode like how do i start putting that together
1: mm-hmm. so um, there are a lot of vector search databases entering the market um, there's Five, six, and an ever-growing mm-hmm. number of them. Currently, um, it's kind of still unclear who uh, who will make it through, through through the end of the year um, or or become a leader uh, over the next couple of years. Um, there's also a lot of traditional database vendors adding those capabilities to okay. existing products. Um, Elasticsearch is doing it. Um, Postgres has a, a PG Vector extension um
0: oh, interesting. pinecone okay, is cool. a stand
1: is it, it pinecone is a uh standalone uh a really popular SaaS tool um uh closed source proprietary solution um there are milvis uh cudrant uh Weaviate, um uh they have an open source offering um um supplemented with a, uh, a cloud offering paid cloud offering so um the field is moving very rapidly um and i think as as uh engineering leaders uh you kind of have to assess um you know in that in that moment mm-hmm. of time in that moment in time um uh and do a couple of PO- pocs uh to try to understand the, cap- the current capabilities um how fast? How big is your data set? How 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 fast can we index that data into a vector search database? Um, uh, what does the infrastructure look like? What are the kind of compute, memory, um, uh, hosting requirements needed to uh, to run an open source solution? Right? Do you want to maintain it? Do you have uh, do you have people on staff that have those uh, skill sets? Um and um, um yeah go through a proper discovery.
0: It, it makes sense. Are, so you said some of them are open source. I, I don't know that I've seen any. I like the idea of adding it to Postgres since that's usually what I'm using anyway. But
1: yeah, so the the PG Vector um, as as far as I know, it's not uh, affiliated uh with an official Postgres uh okay. project. It it's 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 written uh, it was written as a as an external uh extension to Postgres. Um okay. and um I've um I've read some kind of mixed uh mixed opinions about it. Um uh I haven't used it all that extensively so um I don't wanna I don't wanna comment if, if someone right um if someone is using it and has uh, great results with it and just to, yeah, just to, just to, just, just to, sorry, just to add to that. Uh, I mean, some of, some of the other ones are, uh, heavily backed, uh, heavily VC backed companies, um, mm-hmm. and have a lot of resources to, to pour into the development of these systems. So, um, um, as, as as far as I can tell, uh, PG Vector is purely an open source solution right now. Um, right. There is no kind of commercial offering um, or roadmap. Um, so you could just you could just expect that uh, some of the uh, for profit uh, commercial uh, vector search databases are going to uh, going to get ahead.
0: That makes sense. Um... In your blog post, um, I did see that you were using WeV8, and I talked to them a little bit at JS yep. Nation in Amsterdam earlier in the month. And, yeah, it was it was kind of interesting to talk about it. Um, before we get too deep in, into some of this, I'm a little curious, like, what what is the difference between a vector database and sort of your standard relational database? A st-
1: yeah. So a standard relational database um, like MySQL, right, like Postgres, mm-hmm. um, I guess SQLite is also uh, can be uh, put into the same uh, class. Um, they've been around for a while. Um, people have been built a ton of applications on top of them. Uh, they work. They're well supported. Uh, there's a huge community around them um uh the whole application layer is also built out right if we talk about uh if we talk about rails um the active record the orm has incredible support for all of those databases mm-hmm. um the underlying solution is is um tailored uh to be able to execute uh sql queries very very efficiently right, right. um and the Vector Search Databases um, is a much younger uh, type of system. Um, and they kind of started uh, from, 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 from the other end. Uh, so they started from being able to compute embeddings um, and then also being able to uh, uh, execute uh, uh, basically like similarity searches, like, um, another word for it is, uh, is a uh, nearest neighbor search.
0: So when I'm querying it, yeah, it's, it's not doing the same kind of lookup. Um, how do you tell it what a near neighbor is or how do you tell it what what is close to what? Is that part of the large language model or is that mm-hmm. something else?
1: Yeah. So maybe, maybe, maybe we need to, uh, maybe we need to, maybe I I, I should explain what a vector embedding is in first place. Mm -hmm. Um, so a vector embedding has a property called dimension and it's basically, it's basically the length of it or think of it as a, as an array of float numbers and, uh, uh, how big is that array, right? Uh, whether it's, uh, a hundred float numbers or a thousand twenty-four float numbers Um, and that is the semantic representation of your data so that it captures the underlying meaning Um, and actually all of those vectors can be mapped out in a coordinate system but the coordinate system is not is not a uh, 2D or 3D uh, dimensional coordinate system uh it 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 can potentially have a thousand dimensions right so so that's oh, wow. where that uh dimension that's, what, that's where that dimension property uh that's what that dimension property refers to um and so when you index the the when you index your data uh right so let's let's go back to that products uh example mm-hmm. um you generate a vector embedding Right. So, a large array of float number, a float numbers representation of your data. Um, and when you uh, when you take a user's query, um, you generate a vector embedding from that query as well. So it 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 uh, you generate a uh, an array of float numbers from okay. from the user's query, right? To kind of translate it into um, uh, into a vector embedding representation. Right. Um, and then there's different, uh, there's different formulas to try and find the closest distance between, uh, be- between those vectors, right? Between the one that's coming, mm-hmm. coming in as a, uh, as a user's query and between the ones that are stored inside of your vector search database. Um, and, um, um, You, for your specific data sets, you should uh, test out uh, different methods, but there's, you can, uh, you can calculate the distance based on uh, a cosine formula. There's another called uh, dot product. Um, There's a kind of fair amount of configuration there um, that uh, you have to, you have to test out and see, see what kind of yields the best results for you.
0: That makes sense. So effectively, it takes, just to rephrase really simply, it takes Mm -hmm. what I give it for my listing. So let's say it's a podcast episode or in your example, a a product, right? And it takes all the information in there and it generates a series of numbers. And those numbers are effectively coordinates in a, you know, n large dimensional space, right? Which is effectively what a vector is, right? Um, I remember in math, you know, in college, you know, they taught us vector was effectively the amplitude and direction, right? And so it's basically from from the origin or from the middle out to some point out there, right? and and that's your vector. And so um, effectively then what you're doing is you're saying, okay, um, if if I put a search in, then it's also going to generate a vector, and then there are a bunch of different algorithms to determine how close it is in you know, the thousand dimension space or whatever. Um, and so it returns all the things that are close to it according to whatever algorithm it has for, for picking the stuff that's nearby.
2: Correct, yep.
0: That makes sense to me. Um, it, it feels a little bit like magic, right? Because I convert all this text to numbers and then magically the other numbers correlate with it somehow and so that's the right answer but it seems to work because people are using it so um you know i'll take that much of it on faith incidentally um when we've talked about like uh, neural networks on adventures in machine learning right it's the same kind of thing it's like we have these weights and they're numbers and we don't know why those numbers work but we get good results so right it's the same kind of deal Um, Right. right okay so Yeah, so let's say that I take all of my data and I seed it into this vector database and I want it to be searchable. What do I have to do in, say, a Rails app in order to make this work?
1: Yeah, so um, there are, so you can either use a uh, vector search uh, and an LLM uh, directly. uh, Uh, and use user apis so whether you want to use weviate or qdrant uh, or milvus um, and and um, there's a number of llms as well to choose from um, we've actually been working on uh, a library called langchain rb okay. uh, which is a set of abstraction layers on top of uh, all of the different LLMs, all of the different um, uh, vector search databases, um, in addition to some tools to help you build an application. Um, so we're kind of building uh, much tighter integration into Rails. So you could just plug it into your active record model um, uh, and index your data as, as a callback, for example.
0: Oh, interesting. That's very interesting because I've used like search kick. We did an episode actually and talked quite a bit about search, but it was more along the lines of the keyword search with elastic searches and things like that. Um, And yeah, you know, a lot of those give you the same deal, right? Where you can have have it index it when it's changed or when it's created. Or you can go in and you can say, hey, re-index the whole collection or things like that. So it sounds like you're providing a lot of those same kinds of tools. Exactly, yeah. And then the rest of it is just having a driver that sends my query into the database and gets a result back, right?
1: Right. Um, And we also also have uh, tools that... Just basically make the whole experience, building the whole experience end to end, much easier. Um, so a big part of interfacing with LLMs uh, is also prompt engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have so we have tools that uh, let you construct, manage, and maintain your your prompts. Uh, prompt management. Uh, we have tools that kind of make sure that. Uh, for whichever call you're making, you're not exceeding an LLM's context window, uh, so you're not exceeding the allowed token uh, number of tokens. Right uh, to pass. Um, uh, we're also uh, we've also built this uh, kind of data pipeline um, that lets you. Um, That lets you import full-on files. So if you want to import PDF files, local PDF files, or text files, Markdown files, or Word docs, um, we kind of take care of a lot of those, uh, a lot of that plumbing that needs to be done uh, when it comes to parsing the files and chunking the files uh, before it gets imported into Vector Search database.
0: Right. And so this is all done in LangChain.
1: Yeah, there's a there's a Python uh, there's a the original implementation was, is in Python and TypeScript. Um, and um, as I've been working uh, within this space, I, I felt like we ought to have our own solution in the Ruby mm-hmm. world as well. Right. Um, so this LangChain-inspired uh, Ruby-flavored one.
0: Okay. Is it called LangChain in uh, Python?
2: Yes. Yeah.
0: Okay. I was just curious if somebody, yeah, came up with some of the the creative name for it. Um, That's cool. And yeah, just looking at the LangChain library, it looks like um, you connect to a bunch of different LLMs. So you open AI... Which is effectively Chat GPT, uh, Hugging Face. I haven't I haven't used any of the rest of these. Um so yeah, so it it'll just it'll do a vector search by generating a prompt that you send over to OpenAI and then I get my response back. Yep. Very cool. And so conceivably, because this is one area that I've wanted to get into a bit with some of these results is so so let me back up for a second. So um, so effectively then my vector search is just a prompt to an LLM.
1: Um, your vector search is a query to your vector search database and then you take those results and pass them to an LLM to synthesize an answer.
0: I'm not sure what you mean by that. So I make the query to my database and I get results back, right? So the
1: vector search, so the vector search is uh, generating an embedding uh, from a user's query, um, calculating the uh, closest distance to right. that embedding to uh, the ones found in your vector search database. Um, and you can, you can serve those, you can serve those results right away to the user. Okay. Um, and, and that's what I've it's been a, assuming. If it's a, um, an open ended question, if, if what you're building is an actual Q and a, then in order to, uh, translate those results into, uh, into a natural language, uh, in, into a proper a natural language uh, style response, you would actually uh, construct a prompt with the original uh, user's question. Uh. The results found in the vector search database, um, an n number of results, mm-hmm. and then you would prompt the LLM to write back an answer, giving the results found.
0: Right. So this is the kind of thing you would expect to see out of like a chatbot or something. Right. And so, yeah, so I have my vector search database that has, say, all 4,700 and something podcast episodes that we've done on Top End Devs. And so then, um, you know, and so it feeds in the, um, the show notes and the transcript and the title and this short description and everything else. And then what it does is when it gets all that back, then it constructs a prompt that it sends over to chat GPT or hugging face or something like that and says, hey, this is all the information I have about this episode. Can you synthesize a two or three sentence response that tells them, hey, according to this episode, this is your answer. Yep. That's right. That's pretty slick.
1: I was going to say so so the main uh so the main um use cases that we try to solve uh, or try to empower developers to, uh, to solve with LangChain R B are things like uh, vector search um, uh, building chatbots um, mm-hmm. and also uh, building a, a QA on top of your proprietary data sets.
0: Okay. So yeah, and that was the question I was going to ask. Is okay? So yeah, how are people using this? Is it just chat bots, or are there other places that you're seeing people use it? I mean, I guess I could imagine that you could get a written out response on a web page for doing a search, but people aren't accustomed to that. So
1: yeah, um, another uh, experimental uh, thing uh, that we've been we've been looking into and and. Uh, built a couple of tools for uh, in LangChain. R B B are agents, um, so um, basically trying to uh, trying to treat an LLM as a, as kind of a general problem solver. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's a lot of emergent research um, uh, in different different prompting techniques, for example, to uh, to try to have an agent. Uh, execute uh, on general, different, various problems.
0: Um, yeah. So my question is: is you know we're kind of talking about all these interesting solutions. So is this something you're using on your own products or at work somewhere or something like that?
1: I run a, a small software development firm, um, and um, last year actually we've uh, we worked with a client, um, and, and uh, um, it's a well-known public company and. Um, they offer data analytics solutions uh, on top of um, uh, regulatory data, uh, mm-hmm. like rules, laws, uh, legislations, uh, national right. and international. Um, and we helped them rebuild their core application. And a big part of it was rebuilding their search experience. So, so we built kind of a traditional um, elastic search cluster and the whole data pipeline and the apis um, the, the front end to it um, and as this AI wave um, um, started rolling in this year I kind of I kind of had uh, an epiphany that uh, what we had just built in the project that we had just included um, was uh, sort of outdated uh, because it was it was a, a traditional keyword search. Um, and I uh, started exploring the, the vector search space and uh, all of the different databases. So we're, so we're actively working with our current clients to kind of um, uh, enhance their uh, products with these new capabilities, vector search and, and LLMs, and, um, and working with product managers to, uh, to try to figure out where these capabilities can be added and where it makes sense to add those capabilities to to the product.
0: And you know what was your experience putting that stuff together? I mean, it sounds like the toolkit's pretty comprehensive and makes it pretty easy, but did you invent a lot of this yeah. stuff <laughs> as you went
1: or um yeah the so I would say that the the overall field um, is still very young. Um, people are prototyping and testing a lot of different approaches. Uh-huh. Um, um, you know, even even the whole field of prompt engineering um, is is still kind of uh, uh, still kind of a black box. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 unclear why you're getting certain results given certain prom- uh, given certain prompts, right? Right. Um, you, you you don't really have much visibil- visibility into the underlying system, especially if it's uh, a closed source one like OpenAI. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: the other so, end of that
1: is that you also don't know
0: how to write the prompt all the time that's going to get you the information you want, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, so we've so so we've been uh, we've been looking at uh, a lot of different libraries uh, across other languages as well. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at how things are done in in uh, the Python uh, link chain implementation uh, or Llama Index. Uh, there's Microsoft uh, Semantic Kernel. Um, there's daily, uh, research coming out on, on the best prompts and, and how to, how to work with LLMs in general. Um, so we're trying to take all of that, uh, put a kind of Ruby spin on top of it, um, and, uh, offer that, uh, to, to, to the Ruby, uh, ecosystem. Gotcha. So
0: yeah, um, yeah. With what you're building with LangChain, though, did you build LangChain as kind of a "Hey, I would like better tooling" on top on this stuff, or was this something you found and you've been contributing to it since?
1: Um, no, I'm the I'm I'm the original the author, author. Um, okay. and I've and I've been very uh, humbled and uh, very amazed at the kind of number uh, at the amount of attention that the the project has been uh, has been getting. Um, and, um, I, I'm super thankful to all of the contributors, um, and everyone that, uh, is actively participating in, in the discussion on, in terms of where, uh, where this library, the direction that this library needs to go and, mm-hmm. uh, what are we missing? What are we lacking? What should be added? Um, we have, a uh, we have a discord server, um, uh, where we're, uh, Uh, Where a community of people building um, these types of capabilities into their products or we are launching new uh, products. Uh, So we're in in a Discord server uh, kind of talking about these things.
0: Yeah, this is super cool. And it's definitely an area I want to explore. And it'd be interesting to see, yeah, which people found more useful, right? Just kind of the standard uh, keyword to link to you know, here's where the keywords appear in the show notes or whatever, or you know, yeah, whether they want more of an answer and then, hey, here's some context right here, the podcast episodes we referenced and the other things that we, right, but yeah,
1: yeah, so, and I think, um, no, go ahead. I, 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 I find that there is a healthy amount of, um, uh. I, I i find that uh Ruby community tends to be very pragmatic uh-huh. um, you know we focus uh very heavily on productivity on developer happiness on maintainability on uh good patterns um good software development fundamentals uh not reinventing the wheel right um obviously a lot of us uh, a lot of those values have been driven by Ruby on Rails, mm-hmm. um, that permeated throughout the whole ecosystem. So, um, and those are the principles that we're adopting with LangChain RB. So, I think, um, uh, as opposed to some of the other implementations or, or languages, uh, we're looking at all the problems through that lens mm-hmm. um, because we don't we don't want to add tooling uh, for a tooling sake. Uh, we want to make sure um, it's Um, uh, it's uh, kind of best practices, uh, opinionated best practices, how we think um, LLM-based applications should be built.
0: Right. So one other question I have is, like, what's next? Uh, You know, what's coming next for LangChain? Let's just start there. I have a few other what's coming next, but yeah, let's start there.
1: Um, so it's, it's adding, um, so we'd like to add more, uh, vector search, uh, database vendors. Mm -hmm. Uh, we'd like to add more, uh, LLM vendors as well. Uh, we'd like to add support for, uh, uh, for local, uh, open source LLMs as well. Mm -hmm. So people can, uh. Start so people can prototype um, those applica- those those types of applications, um, um, and um, we're looking for feedback. Um, anyone uh, anyone that's uh, uh, willing to provide uh, feedback on on whether uh, on, on the documentation on uh, on the abstractions we have. Currently in the in the in the project, um, we're very open to any kind of constructive criticism, and definitely definitely want to make sure that what we're building is is rooted in real use cases um, and not uh, not completely invented. Right, makes
0: sense. Uh, what do you see coming next for uh, vector search and LLM technologies?
1: Um I'm hoping um, I'm hoping that um, the open source LLMs uh, will uh, catch up to the proprietary ones as well. So be um, be as powerful uh, and also be efficient enough uh, so that developers can can run them either either locally or uh, uh, on a um, uh, or, or host them themselves, um, so that we're not we're not just tied uh, to to Open OpenAI because uh, what OpenAI offers right now is uh, they have some of the strongest models uh, currently available. Mm-hmm. Um, I there, there's also a growing field of um, task specific models as well, so models that are uh, trained for specific to accomplish specific tasks like summarization, um, so I I think um, as opposed to using one powerful model, uh, one general purpose uh, model for everything, um, I think people are going to start chunking out um, their workloads to specific models. Um, in terms of the in terms of the vector search uh, space. Um, like I mentioned earlier, um, there's, there's so many different solutions. I think, um, uh, I think in a, in a year from now on, uh, that there will probably be less players, um, based on, uh, you know, folks, folks will have, uh, just much more time to actually battle test those systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think the, the number of offerings is going to be significantly reduced. Um, and we'll just all kind of mob over, um, a smaller set. So just getting, getting started, where, where do you, uh,
0: suggest people start?
1: Um, well, I, I, I would suggest, uh, checking out Langchain RB, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, trying to add those capabilities to your existing products, um, or even checking out the re- cloning the repo, reading through reading through the code base and and, and seeing how how we're doing uh, how the different things uh, are accomplished, uh, what kind of techniques we're using, what kind of prompts we're using, um what kind of settings we're using for different vector search databases. Um I think that's a, um, that would be a good uh, foot on the door if if you're a Rubyist.
0: Sounds good. If people want to connect with you or if they have other questions, is there a good place to find you online?
1: Uh, Twitter is great. Um, um, So um, I I think we can put some links in the the show notes, right? Yeah, we can definitely put a
0: link in the show notes.
1: Yeah, Twitter would probably be the best.
0: All right. Um, Yeah, we'll put a link to Twitter in the show notes then. Um, All right, well, then we'll just move ahead and we'll do some picks um great so i never know if our guests have listened to the show before so i'll just give you a quick uh explanation picks are essentially just shout outs about stuff we like um so you know it can be technical it can be non-technical um i'll just give out a few examples here so um i usually pick a board game as part of my picks now this last month i've been traveling a ton and so I haven't been hanging out with my board game friends, right? Which is usually where I get a new board game pick because it's like, hey, we tried this game and it was great. Um, so I'm going to go back to one that I've played quite a bit on my phone, actually. It's called Star Realms. You can buy the cards, but it is much easier to just play the game on your phone, right? Because you don't have to buy expansions and you have to put it away or you know separate them out or whatever. So uh, Star Realms, um, I wonder if it's on Board Game Geek. So Board Game Geek is where I go to tell people how um, complicated a game is. I i would imagine it's on here. Yeah, it looks like it is. So Star Realms, yeah, it came out 2014. Um, it's a two-player game, 20 minutes per round. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, the weight is 1.93. Um, casual Gamer with us, you know, semi-complicated game, right? So it's, it's not incredibly simple game, but it's not so complicated that a casual gamer couldn't pick it up. Uh, that's kind of what I'm looking at, right? Uh, this is a, a board game weight of 1.93, and I'm looking at a two for the casual gamer, right? Somebody who likes a game that makes them think, but doesn't want a game that's super complicated. Um, and so this one's right in there, right? It's pretty easy to pick up, stuff like that. So yeah, I like that. Like I said, you can pick it up. You can play it on your phone. You can play it against the computer or you can play it against your friends uh, on the app. And anyway, it's awesome. So I'm going to pick Star Realms. And then uh, last week, I took my wife and kids to Disneyland. And so I'm going to do some Disneyland picks this week. Um, Now, Disneyland's a ton of fun. Um, They have California Adventure and Disneyland. um, And you can buy tickets to allow you to switch parks. The Park Hopper Passes. Those tend to cost about $25 more per person. And since I have five kids, that was just a little bit expensive. It's $25 per person per day. And we were there for four days, right? So it would have cost us an extra $700 to get the park hopper pass. So what we did is we just got the one park passes for four days. And then we just picked a park and that's where we were for the day. Um, so we spent two days California Adventure and two days um, in Disneyland. And oh man, it was such a good time. Um, a few things I'm going to throw out. They did have the, the Genie Plus passes. Uh, those are also twenty five dollars per person per day. We did buy those. Um, now the Genie Plus. If you've been, if you haven't been for a while, um, you're probably more familiar with fast passes. The Genie Plus is now the fast pass. You have to pay to use the the Lightning Pass line. Um, but it was well worth it because you know you you use the app right. So unlike the old fast passes. You don't have to have your park ticket in your pocket and run over to the machine to stick it in the machine. You just tell it, I want to ride this ride using the Lightning line, and then it reserves your spot. And then when you get there, you just scan the barcode on your phone and you go into the Lightning line, and it's way faster. So that was that was well, worth, well well worth it. Um, the newer rides, so there were a couple of rides in each, in each one. I think there were two rides in each one that you had to pay on top of the Genie Pass in order to get a Lightning Pass to those. So like the Radiator Springs Racers in California Adventure, there was the new Rise of the Resistance. I think it was because it was new that people really wanted those tickets. Anyway, so they were an extra like 20 bucks per person. So we didn't pay to do Lightning Passes on those. But we had a great time. The Genie Pass is well worth it. The other thing that it does, though, is it gives you... um, uh, automatically gives you the park photo pass. And so <clears throat> when you ride on like Space Mountain or uh, in or some of the other ones that takes your picture, um, Splash Mountain was closed by the time we were there. That's the one that's probably most famous for having the pictures. Um, it gives you a code. You can put the code into the app and you get a, a high quality uh, picture. But they also have people with uh, digital cameras around the park, like high quality cameras. And so we got our pictures taken by photographers that work for Disney. And you also can get it at like the character encounters and stuff like that. And you just have them scan a code on your phone and then it shows up. And then you can download the pictures off off of the app. So anyway, that was worth it. We also stayed at the Grand Californian Hotel, which is an on-resort hotel. The perk is you can get into the park a half hour early. Right. So we were most of the way to the big rides by the time other people got into the park. But the hotel room itself wasn't that impressive. And overall, I just, I, I don't think it was worth what it cost. Right. Cause you can stay in a hotel nearby and then you can either, um, you know, drive in and park at the park or you can anyway. So, um, so yeah. So that's kind of my take on Disneyland. Um, but I've been going to Disneyland since I was a kid. And so a lot of the stuff is more nostalgia than anything else, but it was fun to go with my kids and watch them enjoy it. Especially my seven-year-old. She just loved it. So um, I'm going to pick that. And then um, one last thing I'm going to pick is um, I'm looking at about the beginning of August uh, doing a podcasting workshop. And it'll be a three-month Uh, course. um, And I'll walk you through all the steps of starting a podcast. I just had so many people ask me how to start one. Um, It's terrific for your personal brand. It's a great way to go if you want to meet people in the community. Because almost everybody out there, um, if you send them an email and say, hey, you want to come on the podcast? They'll come on the podcast. Even, Even the people you think never in a million years will this person who's kind of at the top of the community come on a tiny show like mine. And you would be surprised they 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 don't care as much about how big your show is as much as they care that they get the opportunity to put you know put the word out and talk about the stuff they care about and see if they can make the impact they want to make on the community. So um, the other thing is is um, it's also been an opportunity for me to say hey I want to meet just general people in the community and put something out there and say hey jump on a 15, 20-minute call with me, right? And so I get just regular programmers from around the world that, you know, we get to talk and see what they care about, and what, you know, what's good about their career, what what things they wish we they could learn more about, stuff like that, and just make connections. And so anyway, um, it's just a win-win-win for me. And uh, you don't have to break the bank in order to start a podcast. So um, if you go to uh, topendevs.com slash podcast workshop, um, I should have that landing page up here within the next couple of days. And then you can go and you can reserve your spot in the the workshop. Um, right now I'm looking at charging about $2,500 for the three-month workshop. And then, yeah, there'll be a series of lessons and you'll probably just get the whole course all, all up front. And then what we'll do is we'll just have uh, office hours calls. Right, so you can go at your own pace. If you can blow through it in a week, I mean, it's kind of a lot, but you know, what we're talking about is not just getting it launched and out there. But here's how you actually find people and grow and reach out to guests and all all the all the kinds of stuff that you need to know to make it really successful. Um, like launching a podcast on all its own is is really not that involved. Um, but yeah, knowing who to reach out to and stuff like that. The other thing is, is that if I know somebody who would be a good guest on your show, I don't mind reaching out on your behalf right if you join the workshop and so it's like hey i want you know somebody who's been in the industry for 40 years and written eight books on stuff and you know whatever right somebody of that caliber on my show you know and i was thinking this person and if i know him i don't mind reaching out and saying hey i've got some podcasting students they're launching their shows they'd like to have you on and see if they're interested so anyway um that's what i'm doing and i have gone way too long with my picks So Andre, what are your picks?
1: So I'm going to pick a, uh, I'm going to pick a, a show, a game, a book, and a museum. Um, so, uh, so the show, um, so Black Mirror is back, uh, for another season. Um, I started watching it. Um, and it's, it's, it's phenomenal. Uh, (laughs) it's very, uh, it's very dystopian. Mm-hmm. um so it's a good uh, show What pre- pre- i've seen of it it's great be prepared for an entertaining watch mm-hmm. um so the uh game i'll pick is a uh phone game called polytopia uh it's a it's a strategy game um so i'll i'll leave it up to you to check it out but uh just warning that you will end up uh wasting a lot of time uh, playing this game because it's very addicting. Uh, I love the multiplayer Is it a mode. computer
0: game or a... it's a phone game. Yeah. it's a, Oh,
1: on your phone on
2: your phone. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Good deal. Um,
1: the book, um, I've been going back to this one, uh, over and over and over again. Uh, it's a very it's a very intense read. It's very uh, it's very heavy read. Uh, super technical. Uh, this one's called uh, "Designing Data Intensive Applications" by Martin Kleppmann, um, and it and it it's uh, it looks at the landscape of different databases. It explains how they work, uh, how to make different decisions uh, when you're choosing between a. Uh, no SQL or relational database, how to stream data, uh, batch process, uh, message, message brokers, uh, Um, it's a great, uh, great read. Um, and then I'll pick a museum, which is, um, the, uh, chess hall of fame here in St. Louis. Um, it is, if you're, if you're a fan of chess, uh, it's an absolute joy to, to visit. Um, last time I went there, uh, they had a uh, uh, Bobby Fischer and uh, Boris uh, Spassky uh, special exhibit about that kind of uh, famous rivalry. Um, and uh, I was um, uh, nerding out uh, in there for quite some time. Awesome. Yeah,
0: I just looked up the Designing data Intensive Applications because that's something that sounds like it would be an incredibly good fit for our book club. Um, now, I'm going to share another tip. I have Capital One Shopping installed as a plugin on my browser. And it found a place where I it found it on eBay for $11 cheaper than Amazon. So, mm. you know, the delivery is not overnight, but if you don't need it tomorrow, right? <laughs> anyway. Uh, so I'm going to throw that out as a as a help if somebody's looking to buy it. Um, but yeah, that looks like an amazing book, and it it's showing that there's an audio book too. All right, cool. Uh, well, thanks for coming, Andre. This was super fun, and uh, yeah, another thing for me to go play with. <laughs> uh, another cool technology. Yeah. But uh, yeah, th- Thank thanks you. for coming and talking um, through this. This was fun. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, This was great. All right. well, We'll wrap it up here, folks. Until next time, Max out.